Well, good morning, 1BC family and guests. Everybody else got to do it. I want to do it too. He is risen. Amen. Amen. All right. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a break from our study in the book of 1 Samuel. And I want to look at how Nick and Joe saved Easter. How Nick and Joe saved Easter. Now, I can't take credit for this. This isn't new to me. A lot of pastors have done the whole Nick and Joe save Easter thing, especially one of my favorite guys uh, by the name of Andy Stanley, uh, from whom I learned a lot. Um, But I I want to tweak it just a little bit, and I want to show not just that Nick and Joe saved Easter, but I want to show how Nick and Joe saved Easter. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Today is our celebration of the most important day in the history of the world. If it wasn't for Easter, this is a joke. There's no point. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, we as Christians, of all people, are the most to be pitied if the resurrection isn't real. And in fact, not only is it the most important day, but it's also the most attacked day by the skeptics. So typically, their approach will follow one of three different paths. They used to say, well, this this Jesus guy, he wasn't real. This this is myths. This is stuff that uh, people made up a long time ago. He's not real. Well... Praise God for archaeology and the uncovering of texts and documents because that argument is no longer valid. Any scholar who's worth his salt admits the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, even non-believing scholars, even non-Christian scholars, they have to admit, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth actually lived. He's in the Christian sources, okay, we can't just rely on that, though. This is the skeptics talking. He's also in the Jewish sources that are outside the Bible. And they say some horrible things about Jesus. They're not nice to him. He's also in the Roman sources. The Romans didn't really know what to do with this guy. So he's verified in a host of other documents, not just the Bible. So even non-believing scholars say, okay, granted, Jesus of Nazareth was a real guy. He actually lived. But they're going to disagree on his nature. We say Jesus of Nazareth is God's son. He came down from heaven. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died in order to take care of our sin problem. And then he rose again from the dead and went back up into heaven. And he's coming again someday. He is God's son, our savior. A couple amens at least. (laughs) They would disagree with that. They would say, no, he he was just a a good guy. But we made inroads. They at least acknowledged that he actually existed. What was done uh, semi-recently is they'll just deny the resurrection altogether. Well, that didn't really happen. Well, it did. It did. (laughs) It is one of the best attested events in history, verified by over 500 multiple and independent eyewitnesses. If you were to take the resurrection to court, which Lee Strobel famously did in his book, The Case for Christ, and now his movie, The Case for Christ, if you take the resurrection to court, it wins every time. All the jury votes, yes, based on the facts, it actually happened. Now, it it wins in court, okay, so they give us that. So now what they do, okay, Jesus was real, and... All right, he was seen after Friday. Something happened on Friday, 
and then he was seen again Sunday, and then seen over a period of weeks. History and the facts give us that. Okay, so here's what they do. They say, well, he didn't really die on Friday. That's where you Christians get it wrong. He just swooned, right? He fainted from blood loss. It was traumatic. He was kept alive by just a couple of heartbeats a minute. So, yeah, he was real. And okay, he was seen on Sunday and later. But Friday, it's a good thing that I missed Friday because it didn't really happen, right? Crucifixion wasn't real. He was crucified. He didn't actually die. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Here we're going to meet these two guys, Nick and Joe, two skeptics who unwittingly, because of their skepticism and then eventual belief and care for the body of Jesus, verified for all time that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, Savior of the world, actually physically died. He actually died. We're going to see how they did that and why that matters for us today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible this morning, no problem. We're going to have the text up on the screen for you. John chapter 3. And this seems like kind of a weird place to start. Well, the, the crucifixion and stuff happens at the end of the Gospels. We're going to start in the beginning. What I want to do is trace the faith journey, primarily of Nick, but then also of Joe later on in the text. And we're going to look at this faith journey and how they verified the death of Jesus for all time. John chapter 3, let's look at the first couple of verses together. The text says this, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay, let's stop there. A Pharisee, this is significant. The Pharisees were the experts in the law. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Additionally, they were the experts in their Bible. They didn't have the New Testament in that day. And once the New Testament came, they didn't believe in the New Testament. They only had what they called the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. And they were the experts in the interpretation of the Old Testament, and primarily the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. So they were essentially the lawyers of their day. This is why, throughout the Gospels, they approach Jesus and they ask him legal questions. Well, what do you teach, Jesus, about marriage, about divorce, about hand-washing, about resurrection? Because we know what Moses says, so what do you say? Are you asserting yourself as an authority over Moses? Which, of course, Jesus did. But this is why they come at him all throughout the Gospels with legal questions. So this guy is a Pharisee. He's an expert. And it says here, that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's called the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was made up of either 70 or 72 prominent, influential Jewish men, primarily Pharisees, experts in the law. And their job was to tell the people what to do and how to live. Uh, their job was also to maintain civil order because they were the go-between between Rome, who was ruling the world at that time, and the Jewish people. So this helps us understand why they wanted to get rid of Jesus, this rabble-rouser. He was going to cause a revolt, and Rome was going to come in and kill all the Jews. So this is what the Sanhedrin did. They controlled the people. So here's Nick. He's a Pharisee, he's an expert, and he's powerful. He's a member of the ruling class. And he comes to Jesus at 
night. At night. That's not a good thing in John's gospel. So he comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want to be seen. We learn later on in the text that people are afraid of the other religious leaders and what they might think if you're associating with Jesus. But night and darkness are interesting in John's gospel because bad things happen at night. And it's associated, that is night, night is associated with sin and guilt. In fact, a little bit later on, Jesus is talking about the sin of the Pharisees and they said, well, this doesn't really apply to us, does it, Jesus? In chapter 11, and uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 9, and he says, it absolutely does apply to you. You work at night. Night is when evil and wickedness and darkness happen. In chapter 11, Jesus says, those who walk at night stumble because the light, that is truth, is not in them. When Jesus goes out, I'm sorry, when Judas goes out to betray Jesus in chapter 13, the last sentence And that section is very short, and it says this, and it was night. Jesus is the light. Jesus is truth, and darkness is of the enemy. Darkness is wickedness. Darkness is evil, all throughout John's gospel. So Nick comes to him at night, and at the end of our section this morning, Jesus is going to call him out on that. All right, let's move on in the text. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, which is just a a fancy word for teacher. And this is significant because as we're going to see later on in our text this morning, Nick was the teacher of teachers. Jesus calls him the teacher, capital the, the teacher in Israel. So he's actually placing Jesus above himself by calling him Rabbi. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Great observation. And then I love what Jesus does here. Jesus just cuts him off and he anticipates Nick's question. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How'd you do that, Jesus? How'd you do that? They told me that you might do that, that you might just anticipate my question. So here's what's going on. There's a subset of these powerful religious leaders, of these Pharisees, who are starting to believe that Jesus might just be the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior of the world. We learn this a little bit later in John. So what they do is they get together and they say, all right, Nick, you're the smart guy. You're the expert of the experts. You're the Pharisee. You go talk to Jesus. Ask him some of our questions. Just see if we can get some answers. Because the nation is just, just turning itself inside out. We're, we're as, as the Sanhedrin, we're losing control of the people. Jesus is getting the control. This is chaos. This is madness. We need some answers so that we can be on the right side. So Nick, you go talk to Jesus for us. Ask him about this kingdom of God thing that he's talking about. What's that all about? So for us, this is basically the question that they're wanting to know. How can I have peace with God? How can I be a part of this kingdom? How can we have the forgiveness of sins? What is this all about? And Jesus just anticipates it. He says, you came to me at night. This is shady anyway. Let's just cut to the chase. You cannot be a part of the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Wow, you literally read my mind, Jesus. But Nick's confused. Look at the next verse. This is what he says. He says, hey, how can somebody be born when they're old? 
Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And that's just gross. We're not going to camp on that too long. <laughs> Have you ever been around somebody who's just like way smarter than you? And they say something to you, and you're not really tracking, so you just kind of make a joke about it, and hopefully you can quickly move on. That's what Nick's doing here. He's just confused. i got to be born again? Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. This is what you're here asking me about. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And Nick's just going, what? You lost me. What are you talking about, Jesus? Let's break this down a little bit. He says you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the spirit. So being born of water refers to human birth, physical birth. That's messy. Things are accompanied by that. We'll leave that alone. But that's birth by water. Birth by spirit is a spiritual birth. It's a second birth. And he goes on to explain this in the next verse. He says flesh gives birth to flesh. People give birth to people. Dogs give birth to dogs. Cats give birth to cats. That's the normal order of things. But then there's this other kind of spiritual birth. The spirit, notice the capital there, gives birth to spirit. And then he starts talking about the wind. And here's his point in all of this. Listen, you don't know where the wind originates from. And you don't know where it goes or how it's going about. But you see the effects of the wind. Are you tracking with me? Where'd the wind come from? I don't know, but it's windy. Same thing with the spirit. The spirit's tough to track. It's mysterious. Something's going on. We don't really know how it's all happening, but we know that it is happening. That's the point that Jesus is making with Nick here. The spirit is at work. So, yeah, you got to be born first, like a person, but then there's a second birth, one that the spirit achieves. I love Nick's response. How can this be? How can this be? Nicodemus asked. And then Jesus just gets him right here. You are Israel's teacher. It's a big title. You're the teacher of Israel. And you don't understand these things? You're the teacher. And you don't get it? And at first I was kind of, you know, sympathetic with Nick. I'm thinking, well... How's he supposed to get it? It's laid out for him in Ezekiel, the very thing that he's supposed to be an expert of. This is what the prophet Ezekiel says in chapter 36 and verse 26. This is God talking. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I told you like a thousand years ago that this was going to happen, Nick. (laughs) Read your Bible. He says, you of all people should have known. 
Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. So how are you going to believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? He says, no one's ever gone up into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Hold on a minute, Jesus. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Because that's either blasphemy or reality. So you're telling me, Jesus, that you actually came down from heaven and you are delivering to us God's truth, God's message? And then you're going to call yourself the Son of Man? That comes from a prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. So Daniel has this vision of the heavenly throne room. And the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, our God, the Father, is sitting there. And this is what the text says. Daniel says, in my vision at night, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now Nick knew that text. He's saying, Jesus, you're him? You're that guy? Because we're talking about the kingdom, and this is kingdom come. This has massive ramifications for what's going to happen in the next couple of days. Jesus, help me out here. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Nick knew that story. Nick knew that story. So in the book of Numbers, here's what's happened. Here's what happens. The people of Israel, um, they cry out against God, they rebel against God, and as punishment, snakes enter the camp and start biting people. And the people are dying. These are venomous snakes. So they go back to Moses and they say, intercede, uh, to God on our behalf, we're sorry, we should not have spoken against the Lord. So Moses does, and this is what God said. He says, all right, Moses, make a bronze snake and stick it on a pole and make it really, really high and lift it up in the middle of camp, and then when people get bitten by these snakes, all they have to do is turn and look. Look at the serpent on the stick and believe. And when they did that, they didn't die. They were healed of the poisonous snake bites. So now he's saying to Nick, and Nick doesn't get it right away. He says, just like that happened, and the serpent was lifted up, and everybody could see, it's going to happen to me too. So Nick's probably thinking, okay, you're going to be exalted? He's not thinking crucifixion. And then he says this line, everyone who believes may have eternal life. And Nick's thinking, you said believes, you mean behaves? No, everyone who believes. You see, what the Pharisees did is they invented this whole set of rules on top of the rules that Moses laid out called the traditions of the elders. And Jesus railed against this throughout his ministry because he said, you're tying heavy burdens around people's necks. You can't do all this stuff. It's not about the externals. It's not about your behavior. Jesus is after your heart. He says, believes, not behaves. It's an internal thing, Nick. It's not an external thing. And then we get these really cool verses here. Jesus' mission. You've probably heard this verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not whoever behaves, it's whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Nick, I know what's happening behind the scenes. I know the religious leaders are trying to kill me. I know that I'm on trial for my life, in essence. But I have life, and if you don't believe, you don't. You're the one condemned. And it goes back to this light and darkness thing, and we'll wrap up chapter 3 with this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Truth. Jesus. But the people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Darkness conceals the evil deeds. Darkness is the place of evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they have done, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Don't come to Jesus at night. Don't come to Jesus at night. You're asking the right questions. Good. I get it. You're, it's heating up in here. Can I get an amen? I get that you're asking. But live in the light. Be bold. Make your discipleship known. Make that decision. If you're in the darkness, death follows. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to chapter 7. John chapter 7. So stuff is spiraling out of control here. Nick and Joe are still secret disciples of Jesus. But now the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership, they want Jesus arrested. So they send the palace guard. They say, go and arrest Jesus and bring him back to us so that we can have a trial. So the guards try to do that. And they come back. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they ask him in verse 45. They ask the guards, where is he? And the guards say, no one's ever spoken like this man speaks. We couldn't arrest him. And the Pharisees are like, are you kidding me? You mean he's deceived you also? Have any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? No. That's what it says right there in 48. And then there's Nick on the sidelines like, oh. Hey, Joe, should we say something? Oh, we kind of believe. Oh. Let's keep our mouths shut and not say anything. Nick tries in verse 50. He kind of, with a real small voice, just says, um, <clears throat> hey guys. <clears throat> Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? Remember, he's a legal expert. right? He just wants a fair trial. He's trying to save Jesus' skin. Guys, we're kind of going about this the wrong way, bordering on illegal. Let's have an actual trial. Don't just arrest the guy. And the Pharisees shut him down in verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Jesus was from Galilee. So now they're accusing Nick of coming from Galilee and being, you know, kind of chummy with this new rabbi guy. And they say, look into it. You'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Ever heard of Elijah? You know, the prophet? Or how about that guy Jonah? They were both from that general region. 
Again, the guys who are supposed to be the experts missed that one. <laughs> Here's the kicker for us. Jump to chapter 19. You know what happens in the interim. Nick and Joe and the rest of their cohort don't speak up. Jesus is illegally arrested, tried, condemned, and he dies. This is what we see in chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, that's Joe, we learn out of Mark's gospel that Joe was like Nick. He was very wealthy and he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, that 70 or 72 person ruling body. Later, Joe asked Pilate, the governor for Rome in that area, for the body of Jesus. Now, this is significant. Both Nick and Joe are pious Jews. They're Pharisees. They don't want this rabbi's body left on a cross because very shortly it's going to be Passover. This was disgraceful. They wanted him down. They wanted him properly taken care of and buried. If somebody was crucified and nobody claimed that body, then that person would either just go in a mass grave with a whole bunch of other bodies and be covered up with dirt, or they'd be thrown into the city dump, known as the Valley of Ben-Hinnom or Gehenna, where the garbage was continually burning. These guys are secret disciples of Jesus, and they want to take care of their rabbi's body. That was a common thing. When your rabbi died, you took care of him. You took care of his body. So they ask Pilate, they use their influence and their wealth and say, can we please have the body of Jesus? Verse 38 tells us, now, Joe was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the other Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nick, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Guess what? It's not nighttime anymore. These guys are in the light. These guys are in the light. They've risked reputation and fortune and apparently their lives to say that this was not right. We were secret beforehand. Not anymore. Here we are to claim the body of Jesus and identify ourselves as his disciples Come what may. This was the Son of God. We're going to take care of him. We see this faith journey come full, sight, uh, full circle. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Those were used to embalm the body. And they were about 75 pounds. Your text might say 100 pounds. Ancient weights and measures are hard. It was a lot. <laughs> this body was treated by rich men to a rich burial, which also fulfilled Isaiah, who said that Jesus, or the suffering servant, would be with rich men in his death. So about 100 pounds of spices. Verse 40, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. All right, now, they probably didn't actually do the wrapping themselves. Remember, these are pious Jews. We're going to see here uh, a verse or two below that they're getting ready for the Sabbath day. In order for them to celebrate the Sabbath, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, the day of preparation, getting ready for Passover, in order for them to celebrate that, they had to be ritually or ceremonially clean, which means they could not come in contact with the dead body. So what they would have done 
is hired the professionals to do this. That way they could be ritually clean. All right? So the pros are going to do this. Verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. This is God's providence. Verse 42. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation and Passover was coming, the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So the place where he died... The right men for the job were available, and a tomb was available. They had to get him off the cross. They had to get him cleaned, washed, embalmed, and into the tomb in time for Passover. And they did. You know what happens next in chapter 20. So early on the first day of that week, so that's going to be Sunday, it's still dark. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. She saw that the stone was rolled away. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. This is John being humble. He always says, the other disciple or the one whom Jesus loved without saying his name. We know it's John. She comes to Peter and John. And she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both of them were running. But the other, outran, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stop bragging, John. You're faster. right? You know, Peter's reading this, like, you know, 20 years later. He's like, come on, John. Did you put that in there? <laughs> Verse 5. He bent over and he looked in, and here's this thing for us this morning. At the strips of linen lying there. But he didn't go in. Verse 6. Peter came along behind him, and then he went straight into the tomb. Peter's not waiting for protocol. He's going in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. And then the rest of the Easter story unfolds with Jesus appearing to the women and to his followers, to his men. Here's the kicker for us. On Resurrection Sunday, that first Easter, Mary heads to the tomb early in the morning. She runs back. She fills in the other disciples. They come to the tomb to check out the scene. This passage in chapter 20 is testimony to how Nick and Joe had the body prepared. It was done by professionals who would have checked Jesus for signs of life. They're going to be spending probably an hour or two with this body, wrapping it, putting spices on it. They're going to make sure that there's no heartbeat. Or that the chest isn't rising or falling as the person is breathing. These are the pros. They know what they're doing. Then they loaded up Jesus with nearly 100 pounds of spices and liquid and powder that would have crushed his chest and restricted his breathing. Lay on the ground and put a 100-pound weight on your chest. How well and how long can you breathe? Additionally to that... His head was wrapped, which would have caused suffocation. Suffocation is oxygen not entering the body. So let's just say by chance that maybe he kind of survived that. Well, then he would have died of asphyxiation a short short time later, and that's oxygen deficiency to the body. So even if he was breathing a little bit, he couldn't have breathed enough. And oftentimes what these embalmers did is they would put the spices and liquid and stuff down into the mouth and into the throat because as decay comes out, that's where it's coming from. And they didn't want the body to stink. Prior to his crucifixion, Jesus was flogged by Romans. Here's how flogging worked. They shackle your hands above your head to a pole. 
and then they whip you. And we're thinking, well, it's just a whipping. You could survive that. No! <laughs> Most people didn't survive Roman floggings. They would use different types of instruments in order to brutally torture that person who was being flogged. A famous one from history is called the Cat of Nine Tails. It's a whip with multiple cords, and at the end of those cords, there are things attached to it like glass, rocks, chips of bone, things that are sharp. And the body would be flayed into ribbons all over, and the muscles and the bones and the organs would be exposed. Most people bled out while hanging on the stake. Their body would go limp, and they would just be stuck there, and the soldiers wouldn't stop. They had a set number of lashes that they had to do. Typically, by the end of that, you're dead. If you did actually manage to survive that, Jesus had to go get crucified. And he was so weak from blood loss along the way that he couldn't even carry the cross that the Romans made him carry. Remember, he fell down, and they pulled Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd and said, you carry it. Jesus is too weak. And now his body is just flayed into ribbons, and he's attached to this cross. And in order for him to breathe, he's got to push up. And every time, he's just rubbing up against his bones and his organs, bleeding out. There's no way he survives. Okay, skeptics, what if he did? He doesn't survive Nick and Joe's care for the body. He can't breathe, and he's crushed to death. It's medically impossible that Jesus did not die. And the actions of these two former skeptics silence the skeptics throughout all of human history. Jesus actually died. There's no way to survive this embalming, let alone flogging and crucifixion. And you might say, well, these are just loose facts that you kind of cobbled together as you went throughout John. No, it's not. They serve a purpose, and this is what John said. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He says at the end of his book, he did so many things that all the books in the world wouldn't even be enough to hold it. Here's the kicker. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay, skeptics will say, he actually lived. Okay, he appeared after whatever happened on Friday. He appeared Sunday and for a couple of weeks. But he didn't actually die. Are you kidding me? You can't deny the actual, physical, literal death of Jesus. No one can survive this. So that goes back to their other question. They disagree with us on the nature of Jesus? If his death actually happened, which it did, and if his resurrection actually happened, which has been proven, then you have to agree with his own self-assessment. I am the son of God who came down out of heaven, lived a perfect life, died for your sin, and conquered death by the resurrection. History verifies it, amen? I want you to have hope this morning. We have a reasoned faith. We don't just believe in fairy tales. It's abundantly clear that Jesus lived, that he actually died, and that he rose again from the dead. Now you know the truth. What are you going to do with it? Pray with me. God in heaven, I thank you for the details. 
thank you for Nick and Joe, two guys who were timid, who were skeptical, who were misinformed experts, who got it wrong. But in the end, when their faith came full circle, they got it right for all of us for all time. God, if there's anybody here who has not been presented with these facts and now has been this morning, God, I pray that you would move by the power of your spirit that Jesus talked about in John 3 on their hearts this morning so that they might believe. May today, the celebration of the most important day in the history of the world, be a day of salvation for many. God, we thank you that even after 2,000 years, the truth has not been silenced and it will not be. We'll continue to scream it from the rooftops. Jesus, your son, our savior, died and risen in whom we trust and in whose name we pray. Amen.